We're gonna play a little rock and roll right now. Just let me hear some of that rock and roll. Rock and roll. Rock and roll music. Rock and roll. 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 Rock and Amazing how I can remember my lines after all these years. When you talk about the British invasion, there are certain bands that immediately come to mind. The obvious ones being the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Animals, the Kinks. But if there was ever a UK band that was responsible for the music scene expanding from early 60s pop into the heavy rock sounds that would carry well on into the 70s, the Yardbirds were the ones who laid that groundwork. Starting off with guitarist Eric Clapton, they played an authentic rhythm and blues and garnered huge crowds that rivaled the Rolling Stones. They continued into the 60s with another up-and-coming guitar master, Jeff Beck, releasing big hits like Hot Full of Soul. And of course, they later recruited one of England's most in-demand session players, Jimmy Page, who would see the band out to its conclusion in 1968, only to regroup as the New Yardbirds, which in short order would be rechristened Led Zeppelin. But through it all, there was one constant in the Yardbirds, the man responsible for their heavy rhythms and wildly dynamic tempo changes known as Rave Ups. And today, he's the only remaining original member, the man behind the drum kit since day one, Jim McCarty. Boom, 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 boom. I'm gonna shoot you right down. And more, and that's for sure. I bring you diamond rings and things right to your door. We pretty women stand in line. We left you, baby, in an hour's time. And I'm a man, I spell M A N. And I know, well, if she had me back again, well, I would never make her sad. I'm basic confused, hanging on by thread. I'm being abused, I'd be better off dead. If you're out to get me, you're on the right track. Quitting teasing, I'm starting to crack.
Our guest today is the innovative drummer and last current original member of British blues-based powerhouse The Yardbirds, a band that famously helped launch guitarist Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page into household name status. But more importantly, they expanded on their roots' influence and became the progenitors of psychedelic and heavy rock, with hit singles like I'm a Man, For Your Love, Over Under Sideways Down, and Hot Full of Soul. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast author of Nobody Told Me, My Life with the Yardbirds, Renaissance and Other Stories, and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, Class of 92, Jim McCarty. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. <laughs> it's afternoon, actually, where I am. That's but, uh, right. You're in hello. France. Yes. Uh, life is good. It's uh, it's quite warm. It's uh, I don't know what it is in your Fahrenheit. It's probably about in the high 80s at the moment. Well, then a happy early Bastille Day to you, sir. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's an early summer, I tell you that. Whereabouts in France are you? I'm down in the south, not far away from Nice. Okay. Now, yeah. you were born in Liverpool, ironically, yeah. in the same hospital as Paul McCartney, Walton. Same hospital in Walton. Yep. <laughs> How funny. But you were raised in London. Yes. Growing up in London, did you have any ambition as a youngster to be famous? Not really, no. I've just had the regular life in the suburbs, really. I went to Sunday school and uh, I went in the, to the boys' brigade. That's where I started uh, drumming, like playing the military drum, you know, the snare drum. Mm. Uh, and uh, it was a bit miserable, rainy and a bit foggy in those days. And uh, we, we were surrounded, actually, by bomb sites, you know, from the war. Sure because our area got bombed quite a lot. And uh, when I was a kid, we used to play it because they didn't really renovate the bomb sites for a long time. And we used to play on the bomb sites. You know, that was like open fields and where houses have been, you could go down into the basements and kick the ball around and all <laughs> that, you know. So it was fun. What was the first time you heard American rock and roll? Uh, I heard it a little bit on the radio, on the BBC, and then we started hearing records, of course, and it was always things like Buddy Holly and the Crickets and the Everly Brothers and early Elvis, and we loved all that stuff. It was really uh, exciting. Do you remember the first record you ever bought? Yes, the first record I ever bought, I think, was a jazz record. It was a blues, actually, by Humphrey Littleton. It was called Bad Penny Blues. <laughs> And uh, another one was uh, Freight Train. Do you remember that? It was more of a skiffle record. It was by Chas McDevitt and Nancy Whiskey. It was, uh, it was a very cool record. You mentioned that you started on the military drum school. Yes. But what was your first proper drum kit? Well, uh, well yes. I started on the, on the military drum and uh, just the snare drum. And then I saw a drum kit for sale in the local paper. I can't remember what it was. It was very simple. It was just a bass drum and a snare drum and a hi-hat, I think. And uh, it cost me £11 in the day. And I asked my father to lend me the money so I could buy it because I had a little group coming together at school. And we used to play all that uh, Johnny Cash and Buddy Holly stuff in the school group, you know, when I was about 17. And so I bought this kit and it was very basic. And then I gradually added to it, and it got bigger and bigger, you know, yeah. uh, as they do. You mentioned your father. You asked him for the loan. Yes. Did you ever pay him back? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did. I mean, it was uh, it was the uh, you know classic, really, because um, I went to uh, play down in a holiday camp in Cornwall, down in southwest England, and I earned money working in the kitchen, you know, washing up and everything. Yeah. 
uh, I did that for a few weeks and then uh, I earned enough to pay him back the 11 pounds which is I don't know how much that's worth now it's probably about a thousand <laughs> true, true in fact my father died when I was about 17 oh. so I it, and I was the only child so it was me and my mother and you know when we started the Yardbirds she wondered what it was all about because I was working in the stock exchange in uh, in London and I used to go up and get the train every morning and work in an office and uh, work out facts and figures and then I got into the band and it became quite full on right. and I was you know traveling from the office straight to gigs sometimes on the train and all that and I had to change in the pub lavatory or something into my blues gear or whatever <clears throat> and then it got so much I said well I, I can't really cope with this I'm gonna have to give up my job and so I went to my employer my boss and I said well I'm in, I'm in a band and uh, it's doing quite well and I can't manage the both at the same time so when the band folds you know in a couple of years time can I have my job back <laughs> so when said, the yes, band folds that's <laughs> yes, yes of course uh, but obviously, I, I never went back. I never went back to him. I got in the band and it went from there. When you started those bands that you talked about before, you know, when you're playing American Rock and Roll, were you with Paul Samuel Smith at that time or did he come later? Uh, no, he was there. Actually, he was there from school time. We went to a school called Hampton Grammar, which was in the southwest of London in the, in the suburbs. Uh, that was our sort of local high school, if you like. And we were always friends and we always liked the same records. And, uh, and it was actually after when we'd left school that I bumped into him. And um, we went, had a couple of drinks in a pub. And he said, oh, come back to my house. I want to I wanna play this record. It's Jimmy Reed live at the Carnegie Hall. And I, I'd never heard that before. Mm. And I thought, oh, this is great. You know, I love this sort of music because it's... Uh, it's very <clears throat> evocative and passionate and uh, 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 and rock and roll as well with it. So that's how I got into uh, hearing stuff from the States that was blues. It, it became bigger and bigger and we started to hear records by Bo Diddley and Muddy Waters, Slim Harpo, B.B. King, all those guys. And it became more and more exciting and, and we just wanted to play that music. So we eventually formed the band, which would be the Yardbirds. And for some reason, I always assumed that the Oddbirds started with Eric Clapton as the guitarist, but that wasn't the case. No, we had, uh, Paul and I were from the same school, as I said, but the other three, Keith, Ralph, Chris Trey, and actually Top Topham, who was the lead guitar player, first of all, mm. they, they were all in an art school. They all went to Kingston Art School. And Top was a bit younger than the rest of the guys, and his parents didn't really approve of him playing in a band. They wanted him to study art. He, he was a very good artist. So he had to leave, unfortunately. And this is when um, Clapton came into the scene because he was at art school with Keith and Chris. So he came along for an audition, uh, and obviously he got the job. What were your initial thoughts of him? He, he was very, uh, very keen, very enthusiastic. He obviously fancied himself, let's say. Uh, he had a bit, a bit of an attitude. Um, Something not uncommon to guitar players. <laughs> yeah, he had an attitude much more than Top had. And I don't know whether I, I, I took to him immediately, but um, in the end he became a great friend. And uh, 
he could play and uh, but he was just learning then at the time and uh, he was copying all the big solos from you know buddy guy and people like alan wolf and stuff so he got better and better with the group there's a term rave up i always associate with the oddbirds i think as a drummer you're the dominant factor in the quote-unquote rave ups that you guys used to do how did that start like, because you, oh, uh, you certainly took the blues in places it had never been before Yes, I think it came to be through Paul Samuel Smith, the bass player, because he'd seen some other bass player. Maybe the bass player was Cyril Davis, who was a blues harmonica player. He'd seen him do it, and it was it was just doubling up the notes on the bass, uh, and the drums followed. You know, we 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 doubled up and made these great crescendos, mm. and uh, eventually Giorgio Gamowski, our manager, started calling it the rave up. <laughs> uh, so that's that's how it got its name uh and we we did it really to make our show more exciting because we played in a club called the crawdaddy we actually followed the rolling stones uh into this club when they finished their residency when they got too big to play there anymore and we used to play there and it was all very exciting and we, we used to play these songs for a long time and then play very quietly and improvise and all that and then bring this rave up into it and of course everyone would go crazy sure. and, you know, <laughs> you know j jump up on the beams and all that stuff and it was a way of um of making the music more exciting you use dynamics beautifully yes yeah we we, we were very you know Light and Shade was part of our act. Sure. Now you mentioned George Ogomelski. Had you met him before playing the Crawdaddy, or was that how you came to meet him? Well, he was the uh, promoter of the Crawdaddy. Right. So when the Stones left, we got in touch with him and said, why don't you um, come and see us rehearse and see what you think? And <laughs> he, he told me later, quite a long time, a few years later, that he was walking up the stairs in this pub in Richmond to the rehearsal room that was at the top. And we were doing one of these rave-ups, and he thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, they sound a bit like the Stones, but they're sufficiently different, so um, I'll, I'll book them. And so he did, so that's how we, we got the gig. He seemed like a character, quite a formidable guy. Yes, he was like very um, bohemian. He was involved in films and jazz festivals and all that. He was uh, a mixed uh, European, you know, I think his father was Italian uh, and his mother was Russian or something like that. So, yeah. uh, to us, he was a bohemian, you know, an interesting character who smoked uh, French cigarettes and had an apartment in Earl's uh, uh, Court in London, which was quite a cool area. I know he's no longer with us, but years and years ago, I saw an interview with him. You know, it always stuck with me because he said, you know, if I had known the Rolling Stones were going to sell out and do all that prancing about and all that, I never would have helped them in the first place. <laughs> Did he say that? Yeah. So he yeah. seems like a real purist, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess he was, you know. Um, I think he missed out on the Stones. I think he would have been their manager, but Andrew Oldham sort of got in there, you right. know. I, I don't know the, the story, but... Um, he definitely lost the stones to Andrew. Sure. And so he made sure he was going to manage us. And one of his first acts as manager was that you guys did a series of shows backing Sonny Boy Williamson in late 63. Yes, that's right, because Giorgio was involved with the National Jazz Federation in the UK, which was based in London. People like Chris Barber, the jazz trumpeter, were involved. 
he used to be involved in getting these blues tours together where all the great black singers would come over and, uh, and tour around England, maybe just for half a dozen dates. Right. Um, people like Howling Wolf and Muddy came and, and Sonny Boy Willison came. So one day he thought he'll bring Sonny Boy down to see us. We were playing a little club down where Sonny Boy was playing, down in Croydon. And he said, well, why don't you stay over, Sonny Boy, and play some gigs and these guys will back you up. So Sonny Boy liked London. He liked all the adulation, you know, all the groupies, etc. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he hung around for a while and we backed him up on a few shows and then eventually we did that recording with him. And it was funny with Sonny Boy because we, we met up in the afternoon and we rehearsed all the songs with him. And then when we came to the show later on that, that evening, he played a whole load of different songs. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he had some Jack Daniels or whatever, and you know, and he was in the moment. He played what he thought up then, you know. Right. Uh, so we had to follow. Uh, that, that was a bit tricky. So all the arrangements out the window. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the recording does actually sound a bit tentative. We're waiting for him to start, you know, and it must have been difficult for the guitar players. I didn't know what key they were in. Right. Before you guys ever recorded a full studio album, you recorded a series of demos, um, like John Lee Hooker's Boom Boom. And yeah. uh, singles were released from that, like Billy Boy Arnold's I Wish You Would. Yes. I Ain't Got You. Great song. Uh, what are your recollections of those early recording sessions? Where were they recorded? Uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me that. Yeah, it was actually, it was coming to my mind actually where it was. It was in a place called R.G. Jones Studios, which were in Morden, sort of southwest London, southeast <laughs> London. Uh, and it was a little studio, sort of famous really for doing demo discs because it was cheap and there was a good engineer. Uh, I think R.G. Jones was the engineer himself. Um, and I remember going in, doing the first session with Boom Boom, and um, Georgia said, well, 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 come on, let's do an original song. We, we'll make some publishing money, because we didn't know what he was talking about. Publishing was a mystery to us. Yeah. Um, and I think Keith wrote a song called Honey in Your Hips, which we recorded, and uh, of course it eventually came out on some album somewhere. That, that, that was a sort of a Bo Diddley beat thing yep. that Keith put together in the, quickly in the studio together with a couple of others, which I can't remember now. Was that your first experience recording? Yes, more or less. Yes, yes, it was good because they knew what they were doing and they got a good sound and the band sounded good. Yeah, it was fun. Those are the days before click tracks or any of that nonsense. Oh, yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. We just played in the studio and, uh, and it came out well. No overdubs no at all, huh? Um... Well, maybe he put the vocal on overdubbed because it w would have been, um, I think, probably just stereo. Yeah. I don't know if it was even four track then. Um, probably a stereo recording, and Keith would have put on his vocals onto the backing track. So right. it, it was vocals and backing track. They were the two main tracks. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of Americans know this, but I guess 63, 64, the Beatles would do a series of Christmas shows at the Hammersmith Odeon in London with different acts. And and you guys were on the bill, I believe, in 64? Yes. What do you remember from that experience? Uh, well, I remember that because we met the Beatles and we, we had various uh, experiences. <laughs> one of which was that um, Paul McCartney came into our dressing room one night and he said, oh, I want to play you this song, you know, 
tell me what you think. And he played us this song, which became Yesterday. Huh. Uh, he, he didn't have the lyrics, so he was just singing rough lyrics. And yeah, I think yeah. he was singing like Scrambled Egg. Oh, he yeah. called it Scrambled Egg. Oh, you know that story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we, so we were all sitting there while he played Yesterday to us, which was sort of a, a bit of a magical experience. Um, and we thought, oh, yeah, what a, what a fabulous, that's a fabulous song, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> We're very, we're very pleased you played it to us. You know, without all the hindsight, thinking to back then, did you like what they were doing at that time, musically? No, no, I thought that, I mean, they weren't the same as us. They were a bit more pop right. than us. But they were very clever, I, I thought, to write those songs. And they had great energy. And when they were together, they were very funny. <laughs> and they were good. They were good on stage. I mean, they weren't, you know, it wasn't like a classic rock band right, right. But, but they, they they had good energy and they were a laugh uh, and they were they were nice guys we wanted them to write a single because we were looking for a hit single and john lennon came in one day and he had a 45 single a little 45 record which was breaking point by chuck jackson he said why don't you try this as a, a single i think it was a burt Bacharach song yeah um, it was a good song, but we didn't really go for it. Um, but there happened to be a publisher in the audience one night who had a demo of For Your Love. Right. And he saw us play and he thought, oh, For Your Love would suit this band. So he got in touch with Giorgio and um, we went up and heard the demo. And we thought, this is, this is a good song. This is the sort of song that will be a hit. That was written by Graham Goldman. Yeah, it was right. by Graham. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and Giorgio connected with Graham's manager, and they were from Manchester, Graham, uh, who was a young bit of a prodigy. And so we did we did our version of, of that song, um, Graham's song. Uh, and Paul Samuel Smith had a lot to do with it because he said, oh, I, you know, I'd suggest we do it with a harpsichord and a bowed bass. And we'll stop in the middle and we'll all play the boogie in the middle and, uh, you know, go back to the harpsichord and all that stuff. And, and it was unusual. And it worked, you know, it worked really well. Um, actually, it was Brian Auger that played the harpsichord. He was another uh, another musician who was uh, managed by Giorgio. Your drums in that, just unbelievable. Yeah. That, that breakdown. The tempo changes what makes it. Yeah, and uh, yes, well, it, the tempo change was in the demo, but it didn't have that. It didn't have that drum break. Yep, uh, yep. I think I nicked it for somebody or other. I think I got it from the shadows. <laughs> yeah, I can hear that. I remember Brian Bennett. It was a Brian Bennett um, little drum fill, and the guy that played the bongos. He was only an amateur. Uh, he was a presenter on, on the radio, Radio BBC. Oh. Uh, I don't know who knew him. I think Giorgio knew him. And he came and played the bongos. He just played for fun, you know. Uh, right, right. And the, the way the bongos and the drums linked together, uh, it worked really well, didn't it? It was, it, was a good, uh, it was a good groove. Great song. The only problem with it is that there's a crazy promo clip of you guys where you're dressed in suits of armor. <laughs> what were yeah. you thinking? Yeah, well... <laughs> Well, it was one of Giorgio's mad ideas, because that was the thing that he had. He had a lot of mad ideas. He wasn't very good at making us money, you know, but he, <laughs> he certainly had ideas. Uh, I think he thought, 
we were almost like a monkeys type thing. You yeah. Know? And if you watch that, it is the sort of thing the monkeys would do. You just look so just miserable, look so man. Miserable. It must yeah. have been a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had some nightmares, I must say. <laughs> but he always used to say, oh, oh you know, you should, should talk. He used to call us all baby. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. <laughs> and he would say, uh, oh, the Yardbirds would be a household name. And he was right. I mean, everyone knew the Yardbirds <laughs> five years later. Let alone 55 years later. <laughs> yes, yes, even so. That's right. That's what we never we never thought that. I've always heard that Clapton's departure from the Yardbirds was down to he didn't like the pop direction the band was going in with For Your Love. But that explanation always seems awfully simplified. Is it? Is yeah. gotta, there's got to be more than that. Well, yes, you got, you got it, actually. There was more than that. <laughs> yes, there was more than that. He, he didn't really like... Uh, he didn't get on so well with some of the other guys. Um, uh, they were sort of uh, having difficulties with him, and he—I don't know—particularly Paul. And he didn't like the way um, Paul was sort of taking a, a lead and saying, oh, "You know, I want to produce it this way." And but we all went with Paul, uh, except Eric, and uh, there, there was some politics involved. Uh, I'd say that. And he was always very miserable. He got to be quite difficult to work with in the end. He was, um, you know, always sitting in a in a corner of the van, um, thinking about something else, and he mm. didn't join in with the rest of us. And it became a difficult vibe. And it was better that he left. We actually, you know, we were quite relieved in a way. Did you ever play it out live with him at all? Uh, no, I don't think we ever did. <laughs> He left before it came out, so no, we, we, we only ever played it with Jeff. When he did leave, was there a, a lot of anxiety in the band, or was it just a simple matter of replacing him? I can't really remember. I, I, we were, did we you have were gigs very, booked? Yes, yes, yeah, we were very busy, but we were lucky. I mean, the part of the reason that another guitarist would join was because we had all the gigs. Well, I, I, I didn't mean do you have any gigs, but like impending gigs where he was out and you had to get somebody quickly because you got a show tomorrow night, that kind of Oh, yeah, there. probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. It well, probably was a bit of a, a stress, but we were lucky. You know, we fell on our feet with, with Jeff. Um, somebody recommended Jeff. Jimmy Page uh, did. Uh, yeah, uh, did he rec? Uh, I know, he yes, was asked he, first. Yes, exactly. Yes, you know more than me. <laughs> Yeah, because I guess he recommended Jeff. That's right, exactly right. And um, yeah, Jimmy was sort of on the scene, and he used to come and see us play. And he was a friend of Giorgio's, and he was an obvious choice because he was uh, very well known. But he wanted to stay and keep playing in the studios as a session player. Yeah. And he recommended Jeff. Jeff was his understudy, a very old friend of his, and. Um, he was playing in a, in a place called Eel Pie Island, which is in Twickenham, in Middlesex, uh, you know, a famous old gig. I would associate that with the who. <laughs> yes, he was play, playing with a band called the Tridents. Yep. And um, Giorgio and his henchman or his assistant, Hamish, went down to see him and they said, you know, do you want to come and have a, have a blow with the band? And of course, he was chuffed to be asked. Must have felt invigorating to be able to play who's not afraid to stretch musically away from the blues. Yes. Which Clapton was kind of, at that time anyways, really married to. 
Yes, and he was uh, much more of an all-round player than Eric. Uh, he could certainly play the blues very well, brilliantly, and, uh, and much more. And he had a lot of different influences, you know, Barney Kessel Jazz, uh, Les Paul for all those funny sounds Les Paul did, mm. and, uh, you know, Les and Mary Ford, and, and electronic music, and he loved all the Beach Boys stuff, you know, good vibrations and all that. So he he was great for the band, and he took us forward. How long um, until you had another big hit with Heart Full of Soul, another Graham Goldman composition? Yeah, that was only uh, maybe six months later. Pretty quick. Um, because singles, you know, came out pretty quickly, and we started getting into the ball game of it, releasing the singles and, and getting in the charts, you know, and that was a good time. It took a little longer for the U.S. to catch on to the Yardbirds, but once you did, you broke pretty big here. Yes. The first tour, I heard you guys were not treated very nicely. <laughs> well, we I think it was our fault or Giorgio's fault because we didn't really get the right proper work permits. We came over, we, we didn't have the right permits to play. I think we only played one date, then suddenly realized. Somebody said, oh, you haven't got these permits to play any more shows. So in the end, we went to L.A. Mm. Giorgio rang up a few people because he, he knew people in L.A. and he called up and, uh, and he organized this party. So we played in this party in the L.A. Hills. Um, lots of people turned up. Um, Giorgio did the old PR. <laughs> uh, and he, actually, he was very friendly with Kim Fowley. He was all part of it as well. Oh, he goes back that far, huh? Yeah, and, Ke and Kim Fowley sort of helped out. Yeah. Getting, and people from the birds were there. Jim McGuinn turned up, and, and people even say Bob Dylan came, but I don't know about that. <laughs> but it uh, it sort of got the, the word around in California. Isn't there so, some story so that you guys were banned from Disneyland? <laughs> yeah. What's that about? Well, we weren't banned, but anyone with long hair wasn't allowed in Disneyland for some reason. They they thought people with long hair were anti-American or communist or whatever. Oh, for God's so God. they they didn't they didn't let you in if you had long hair. That's stupid. Uh, um, I think we were going to go there, and they they said, "Oh no, you you'd never get in." I didn't realize until recently that Mr. You're a Better Man Than I was recorded at the legendary Sun Studio in Memphis. That's right, yes. What are your memories yes. of working with Sam Phillips? <clears throat> well, that was funny um, because it was another Giorgio idea to go to, to Memphis and, and go to Sun. And I think he rang up Sam Phillips. But it was all very, you know, hit or miss with Giorgio. You know, he turned up and <laughs> he never knew what was arranged. Right. Uh, and we, we, we turned up at Sun, you know, probably about five o'clock in the evening. And Sam Phillips apparently was out fishing and he was asked to come into the studio. And he, I think he turned up about 11 o'clock. So we were hanging around with nothing to do, just hanging around the studio waiting for him to come. So mm. we didn't get started till 11 o'clock at least. And then we did the tracks and uh, they came off pretty well. They, they sounded great. Didn't Sam have some negative things to say about Keith? <laughs> yes, he, 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 because we were hanging around so long, Keith had had a few beers. We all had a couple of drinks, but Keith used to like it better than the rest of us. <laughs> and he was a little bit drunk when he was doing the vocals. So Sam said, oh, well, you know, the band is all pretty good. Everyone, everyone in the band's okay, except for the singer. 
you'll have to get another singer. Oh, jeez, yeah. <laughs> Not realising that he was a pretty good singer, of you course. know, when he was sober. Right. So we, we did tracks there and, and, of course, Keith overdubbed the, the vocals at a later time in different studios. That was a small little room. Yeah, yeah, it was only tiny. And it had a little drum kit which sounded good and, you know, we were all very excited and naturally Jeff loved it. And they'd had some classic people in there, including Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis and all those guys. Yeah, I think I heard that story somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, you've said a couple of times now that Giorgio did this, Giorgio did that. Why was he fired as manager? Well, um, I think we were on that sort of, um, I, I don't know what you call it, uh, on that sort of adventure. I mean, it was a, like a crazy adventure. It was like something out of a comedy movie, you know, because Giorgio had a, a beard and he had a used to wear a baseball cap. So they used to think he was Fidel Castro, <laughs> you know, with a, all us long-haired guys. At the time, you know, when they thought we were commies or dropouts from the Vietnam War. <laughs> so, you know, we, sometimes we got into a bit of trouble and people shouting at us and stuff. Um and and then we did it. We did a few tours, and we'd had a few hits. Well, we'd had about four or five hits, I mm. think, by that time. Um, but we were still like earning very little money, and we never saw much money. It was the uh, the idea that we should, um, you know, get some manager that would bring us some gosh, really. Uh, after being a hit band, earning whatever it was a week, we were still earning sort of maybe 50 bucks a week each or something stupid. Yeah. Let's get somebody else that's going to get some money for it for the band. And he owned the back catalog for a long time. Well, yes, we were badly uh, advised and we signed over a lot of stuff to Giorgio without realizing that all that stuff was going to come out again. And the catalog was, was uh, you know, going to go on for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we didn't know in those days. No one thought like that. that. No, no, everyone thought it was all going to collapse. It's not going to last that long. But there, there we are. We're still doing it now. Probably more popular now than ever. <laughs> yeah, like a vintage wine now. Exactly. It does. <laughs> it, the, the sound sounds better. Yes. Also, the way it's presented, uh, you know, in terms of the PA and the, the lights as a show compared to how it was. In the old days, we had hardly any PA and very loud and nothing was balanced and the drums weren't mic'd up, as you, you know, as you realise. It was uh, pretty hard going and I don't think it sounded that good, really. You mentioned that Keith liked Little Drink once in a while um, and I heard that Paul Samuel Smith quit after a particularly bad gig where Keith actually fell into your drum kit on stage. <laughs> any truth to that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we were playing, uh, I think it was at Cambridge University uh, in England, and they used to have an all-night ball, a Cambridge ball, at the end of their term every summer. And uh, we got to play there, and you'd, you'd have to play like three times throughout the night. So it went on all night, and then you'd end up at six in the morning, you know, dancing around the city. <laughs> Of course, there were loads and lo loads and loads. Of, you could drink what you wanted or you could eat whatever. You'd be hanging around and you'd sort of get bored and there was nothing else to do really uh, except have a drink. And of course, Keith liked a few drinks, as, a, as I said before. And then we went on for a, a, one late set and Keith was totally out of order. 
<laughs> and it, actually, Jimmy Page was in the audience yeah. watching, and, and he thought it was great because <laughs> Keith started sort of insulting the Oxford Dons. And <laughs> 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 Paul Samuel Smith being a bit of a snob, he sort of hated it. It really annoyed him, and uh, he thought, oh, this is it. I've had enough of this, um, get me out of here sort of thing. I, that's the last draw. I don't want to play with the band anymore. Um, but he, he was really tired and touring was tough, you know, for anyone sensitive. Um, it was a tough life in those days, uh, playing night after night, playing all the same stuff, not knowing quite where you were. Uh, it was very, it was tiring and that's what got us in the end. Uh, after four or five years of that, that, that was about it for all of us. And we haven't mentioned Chris Dreasure. He switched from guitar to bass at that point, and you bring in your old friend Jimmy Page. Yeah. And it was a five-man band for a while with Page and Ben. Yes. Why didn't that lineup stay as it was? Was it too much ego, or was it what was it? Well, it was very, very stressful. Um, I think Jimmy and Jeff, in a way, on paper, yes, it, it would have been great. Uh, we were playing night after night, as I said, and there was a lot of ego going on, and they were trying to outdo each other. <laughs> Basically, they were taking solos in turn and trying to play a better solo than the, the other guy, you know. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was very stressful. But now and then we'd have a great gig, and um, we did a tour with the Stones in England, and we played before the Stones one night, and we, we did one of those great gigs. And the crowd went mad, and uh, they wanted chanting for more, you know, for about 10 minutes. Um, and the Stones had to come on, <laughs> which I don't think they, they liked that idea. So um, Feels great, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that didn't happen very often in that lineup. Thank God that the lineup was documented and captured for all time in that rather dull movie blow-up. Yes. The only good thing about it is the Oddbirds. <laughs> the quintessential art movie really yeah, isn't it? yeah well all i remember was that we had to be on the set very early and took a week to do that little bit uh or five days maybe six days and we had to be there early so we all stayed in a hotel in in london and we had a driver take us up uh you know i think we used to leave about seven in the morning and go get on to set about half past eight or something and we'd be stuck there all day doing that same sequence uh, because Antonioni was a real perfectionist. He just wanted it done the way he saw it. Right. Um, and it, it took a long time to do that little sequence. Um, and it, it, yes, it was a bit boring for us, I will say, but they had everything captured. The club where we played was a complete copy of another club that we played in, out in Windsor, south of London. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of interesting things in the movie, except the crowd, you know, who were told just to stand still and be mesmerised, because they never did that Well, we played. They always went mad. Yeah, of course. And uh, in the film, because the only time they went mad is when they tried to get pieces of the broken guitar. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it was good promo for us because people still see us today in that movie, and... Uh, it's not a stupid movie anyway, is it? It's not like a Gonk's Go Beat uh, that Jack Bruce was in. You know? <laughs> the one that <laughs> Dave Clark 5 did. Yeah, old Dave Clark, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't planning on asking this, but I'm curious. Were many of the shows professionally filmed? Are there things uh, in the can left that we haven't seen? I, I really don't think so. But, but you never know because 
that these things do turn up. Yeah. I don't think there's any film. There's probably some TV of us somewhere or other, but I don't know. You know, maybe Ready, Steady, Go, but I heard that our recordings had disappeared or... Oh, they used to tape over it to save film. Well, yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, they'd, they'd uh, film over it. Exactly. Because it's only rock and roll. No one's going to care about that. <laughs> yes, and it's a shame there wasn't some film or recordings of the, of the Jeff and Jimmy lineup, apart from Blow Up, of course. But right. um, Jimmy was just playing bass, so it's not quite the same. Um, and also, um, obviously, there was a recording when we played with the Beatles in Paris, because one of our tracks is on a Beatles a live album right. recorded at Paris. So uh, they, they must have had us down there then. That, that must have been French radio. The period where Jimmy Page takes over, Peter Grant became your manager at that point. Everybody yeah. knows the story of him with Led Zeppelin. Did you finally get more money? Did you finally get what you guys deserved? Yes, it, it improved with Peter because um, we had Simon Napier-Bell, first of all, after Giorgio. Simon Napier-Bell was a bit of a, I don't know if Jack the Lad's the word, but he was a <clears throat> a man about town, mm -hmm. let's say. Uh, you'd see him driving down King's Road in, a, in an Aston Martin or something. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and then all of a sudden he seemed to disappear from the scene. Um, we were called into. Peter Grant's office one day and he said well Simon wants me to be the manager now so he became the manager and he, he seemed very nice um, and he was always for the band he was always representing the musicians and he, he came on the road with us because uh, he was an ex-tour manager and he right. was a good guy to have around you know if you had trouble because he's a big guy um, and we, yeah we, we started to get better money then and I know he had had a relationship with Jimmy from years earlier, from Jimmy's yeah, session work for some of the bands that, that Peter worked with. Well, yes, and Peter Grant, of course, was involved with Mickey Most. Right. They used to share an office together, and um, Mickey became our producer, which um, didn't really help us uh, in terms of recordings because he didn't have much uh, in common with us. He, he was trying to produce a pop record, so he, he produced us doing some of these terrible pop records, which, didn't work at all. Was that like Ha Ha Said the Clown? Yeah, things like that, which... Um, yeah, Man for Man had a hit with that, right? Yes, yes, I'd already had a hit, but not in the States, I believe. So I think we had a minor hit, and then things like Ten Little Indians and... Uh, well, Little Games wasn't too bad, no. but, you know, that was okay. And also, we didn't play on them. I mean, me and Chris didn't play on some of those singles, which was silly, you know. Really? Um, really? Session players? Yeah, they had session players, so he could save money and, uh, oh, no. you know, do, do the recording sort of cheap. Terrible. <laughs> well, there we are, you know. Jimmy Page was quoted as saying that when the band split, I don't think Jim wanted to leave, but Keith was depressed. Is there any truth to that? Well, I found it very tough. No, I did. I've, I found it tough, and Keith and I had a good relationship. You know, we were um, good friends, and we were writing different sort of songs um now i i you know I, I i always got on well with everyone in the band I, I was always the funny one i was joking and trying to make everyone happy uh, and um but I, I i was pretty tired of it all if we'd had a big break you know maybe for a few months 
and then came back to it you know fresh maybe would have been better but we didn't we didn't really come up with any um any interesting hit songs we 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 couldn't keep reproducing good hits like yeah. shapes yeah. of things or over on the sideways down you know that that was in the days of paul you know he was a great creative influence in the band and jeff of course um so we we didn't come up with anything apart from days of confused <laughs> well, i was going to ask you about that Help explain something to me that always made me curious from the time I was a kid getting into Led Zeppelin. How is it that Jimmy Page, the last member to join, ends up with the name? Because, I mean, he went out first as the New Yardbirds for a tour of Scandinavia. Yes. Well, they, they had dates, you know. We, we had a few tours booked, I think one in Scandinavia, and we didn't want to jeopardize the band, so we were trying to be nice, really. So we let them use the name because I think we were quite keen to, to step away from it. Um, but probably made a mistake. We <laughs> made a few mistakes <laughs> along the way, I'm afraid. But um, well, there we are. But Jimmy did have to change the name eventually because Chris wasn't involved in it in the end, mm. and he was going to be involved first of all, and and he got sort of sidelined somewhere along the line, and John Paul Jones came in. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So they then they had to change really from his point of view. Yeah. They had to change the Led Zeppelin. How did you feel about Led Zeppelin when you first heard them? And more to the point, how did you feel hearing them doing songs that the Oddbirds had worked up, um, like Days uh, of Confused? Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, they did it very well, though. You know, they were a good band. Yeah, but you arranged it. Or yeah. helped arrange it. <laughs> I know. You got I no know. credit on it. I know, I know. It's, it's, it's not very good, is it? Um, yeah, we arranged it. It was a Jake Holmes song, and we did our arrangement, and we were all part of it. And um, I can't say I made a penny on that song, really, uh, to be honest. But um, a great song, and I heard it and thought, oh, we're a bit short of songs. Let's do this. This is the sort of song we need. Mm. <laughs> Not See? knowing where it was going to go, of course. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yes. And then there's another song. I don't think you guys released it, but you recorded a song called Knowing That I'm Losing You. Yes. Which is basically Tangerine. Yes. Yeah, that's another one we did that got uh, transformed, let's say. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but uh, I, I, I don't know about the, I don't know about the, um, what's the word? There is a word for this. Yeah, there's a word for it. It's called ripple. <laughs> ripple. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. The, the providence of it, that's right, it. The right. provenance. Yes, the yes. provenance is the word. I'm not sure the provenance of that one. <laughs> uh, you and Keith worked together post Yardbirds. Yes, uh, acoustic band together. Yeah, we were just uh, we were just fulfilling our our contract. We were still contracted to EMI, and we were writing songs. So we thought, let's carry on. Let's you know release something or other and have some fun. Henry's coming home. Yeah, <laughs> and we did have fun because we recorded in Abbey Road, and yep. we had great great musicians playing with us. And, uh, of course, you'd remember Tony Meehan, wouldn't you? He was a shadow drummer, and he was doing the arrangements. He was doing the strings, and how uh, uh, very good they were, too. Yeah, we were still working with Paul Samuel Smith, and further along the line, we, we got together with Paul, and he was suggesting, oh, we should form another band mm. uh, and, you know, be able to go and play live. That, that's what people wanted to see. And we were just really at the point then where singles didn't really matter so much. We started working on an album with, with musicians um, 
that we we got together and where we called it Renaissance or yep. Renaissance. Were you close with Keith right up to his passing? Yes, yes, yes. We, we, were, we were still very close. In fact, by the time he passed, there was another renaissance going. Um, we wanted to reform our band, you know, with John Hawkin and Louis Tanama and Jane, Keith's sister. Um, and we, we couldn't really call it renaissance. We called it illusion. And then we carried on doing that when after he passed. Um, so illusion became like, what was renaissance before you remember how you heard the news that he had passed away yes uh, i i i saw him actually uh the night before and he was he seemed very down very low he was living in a pretty awful flat in south london and he was split up from his wife and he was looking after his two boys they were young lads you know i guess about six six years old or seven years old or something um, I saw him the night before, and I don't know, I, I don't know, there was something a bit odd about it. And the next day, I, I got a call from my mother, who worked on the switchboard in the local police station. And it was her that actually told me. And she told me, you know, the police have been called into the address because uh, he's died. He's been electrocuted or whatever. And um, so that's how I heard. What a yeah, horrible so, story. Yeah, so it's a big shock. So uh, what, what exactly happened, I don't think anyone quite knew, but it seems like he plugged his uh, guitar into a little synthesizer and um, <clears throat> didn't have it sort of grounded properly and, and got a, a big belt from the electric and oh. uh, got electrocuted. I'd read that his son found him. Yeah, yeah, and, and his son's found him. So, you know, oh. how difficult for them. It was lovely to see his son and I believe his wife at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yes. Great yes. night that seemed to be. Yes. Uh, where was Eric? That was in the Waldorf Astoria in New York. No, but where was Eric Clapton? Oh, sorry. Where, where was that? I thought you said, where was that? Uh, he didn't turn up. <laughs> no. I mean, he, 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 was, he could have been inducted, but he didn't want to be involved, but... Of course, he got inducted anyway with Cream and then inducted again, I think, as a solo player. Is that what made you guys decide to reform the band? Uh, it sort of gave us a bit of impetus and realised how popular we'd been. We started to, it just sort of fell in because I started to play like in a blues band. It was actually Top Topham that came back into friendship with me and we started to play old blues again. And we played in a little pub in London, and it became like the Crawdaddy all over again. Oh, wow. And it blossomed from there, really. Uh, and eventually, Chris and I reformed the band and sort of experiment. Let's see how it goes. And it's still it's going. Still going. <laughs> it's still, a... Well, it's still going. It's amazing. It still goes. And uh, I, I don't know how long I'll keep going, but I, I'll keep drumming as long as I can. I, I mean, I'm not getting any younger, so it can be a bit tiring, but we'll, we'll see. I mean, it's that repertoire. It's so strong. It all sounds good. And uh, found some good musicians to play with, and, um, and it works. I'm 
1966 album Roger the Engineer that's the Oddbirds featuring Jeff Beck and of course on drums the great Jim McCarty who I want to thank for being on the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast you know we didn't cover things beyond music but look him up online he's an extremely interesting and thoughtful man he not only wrote a book chronicling his music career called Nobody Told Me but also one regarding his interest and experiences with the paranormal called She Walks in Beauty My Quest for the Bigger Picture They'll all be in the show notes, so I highly recommend you check it out. You can always check us out at www.itsonlyrockandrollpodcast.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube at It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Typed out as all one word, no abbreviations, spaces, commas, please. I wonder what would happen if you typed it out on one of those old speaking spells. Could be interesting. We'll be back soon with another episode of the It's Only Rock and Roll Podcast. Be good, kids. Early in the morning, on the break of day.